the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and today is the Friday edition. It's the last show of the week. It's the last show of me filling in for Pastor Ron. He's wrapping up his vacation, and he will be back here on the air on Wednesday, July 5th. I know I said a a previous date. I think I might have said Monday. Turns out it's going to be Wednesday because of the holidays. So we'll have two pre-recorded shows, Monday and Tuesday. And then Wednesday, July 5th, he will be back live here taking your calls and questions. In the meantime, we are going to continue like we usually do, taking your questions about the Bible, questions about doctrine, about Jesus, about putting the Word of God into practice in your life, and what these things mean. And, and how you can fall deeper in love with Jesus, because that is the end goal. It's not about just knowing verses, memorizing verses, but to study God's Word, to show ourselves approved, that our hearts would fall deeper in love with Him. The numbers to call into the show, 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585. The toll-free number is 877-630-5757. That's 877-630-5757. The email address is questions at calvarysa.com. Questions, that's plural, at calvarysa.com. You can use our church app, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, to submit a question if you so desire. You can listen um, using the KSLR app, and it's super easy. If you're using the Internet to listen, you can also call in through the app by clicking the Call Now banner at the top, and you'll be connected to the producer at the radio station. You can ask your question on the air. Or you can also, as some have done in the past, you can leave a question with them, and they'll, they'll send it to us. One quick note. So it's Friday here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, scheduling note, you know here at Calvary Chapel, it's our New Testament Bible study night. So our Friday night service, 7 o'clock, still continues. Since Pastor Ron is on vacation still, we will have Pastor Jay Bentley from Calvary Chapel, Durango, He'll be teaching tonight, and he'll be a blessing, I'm sure. He's excited to be here. Both he and Carmen and the kids are in town. And when he gave Pastor Ron the call to say that he's going to be here, Pastor Ron said, well, I'm going to put you to work then. <laughs> he comes from Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. So he, we have hearts knitted together, and we can't wait to hear what the Lord is doing there in Durango, Mexico. 7 o'clock tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Pastor Jay. All the phone lines are open. You have the numbers. While we're waiting, let's go right to our, our uh, questions that have been submitted. The first one is from Anonymous. 
This one is actually carried over from yesterday. So let me qualify that. We didn't get to this yesterday. Um, Both May and I had a wonderful time doing the date day edition, and there were a couple of questions submitted specifically for that show. Unfortunately, um, I talked too much, and so we didn't get to the second one. I'll take it now, though. Anonymous says, I'm in my second marriage And I married someone who has a lot of anger. I didn't know he was like that before we married. I think he's saved, but I'm exhausted in the marriage. If a couple has lots of excess baggage from the past, how can that couple move forward in a godly marriage? Oh, this is a heartbreaking one, Anonymous. Uh, I'm sorry it's so difficult for you. Uh, you know, whenever we use words like baggage and exhausted and 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 especially anger in a marriage, it's not a good thing. And I think what we need to do is first individually, anonymous, both you and your spouse, need to do some self-examination. You need to let the, the Spirit of God search your hearts to determine if you really are born again um, for both of you. Now, you don't give any details, but it sounds like you, you're you the one that married uh, somebody who has a lot of anger. And anger is one of those things that is never going to leave us until Christ comes and changes our hearts. Uh, many of us, we were angry people. But in Christ, we're no longer who we were. That's what Second Corinthians chapter 5 means, that the old is gone. In Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. And as far as the east is from the west, so our sin has been removed. And that needs to be a reality, especially in a marriage where using your words, Anonymous, there's a lot of baggage from the past. One of the things that I want to do, and the first thing, let me, let me reemphasize this. This is the most important thing. Second Corinthians chapter 5 means that whatever has happened in the past is the past. And if we drag any of that into our current situation, our current marriage, um, then we're not living in the newness of Second Corinthians chapter 5. What Christ has done is he's wiped away our sin. He's forgiven us. And because of that forgiveness, we are made brand new. The slate is wiped clean. You know, the, the agape love that Jesus has towards you, he describes in First Corinthians 13 as keeping no record of wrongs. And so since he doesn't keep a record of your wrongs in your marriage, neither should you keep a record of the wrongs done against you. And so if the couple has a lot of baggage from the past, you need to let that go. How does that couple move on towards a godly marriage? That's your question. You have to remember what the Bible says. And the second thing, and really this is the first most important one. If you truly are born-again Christians, both of you, then you both need to be in the Word of God together. You have to agree to agree with God. Whenever I see a marriage that's like this, I, I can guarantee they are not in the Bible together. They may read it, and they may read it on their own time, but they're not reading it together, letting the Spirit of God deal with the issues in their hearts and in their marriage. Malachi chapter 2 reminds us that, and I love this because Genesis chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, there is a reminder here that our wives, as husbands, our wives are our partners. And we have entered into this marriage covenant with them, a promise we've made to God. And this partnership needs to honor the Lord according to his word. The fact that you're in um, 
a second marriage means that there were things that didn't work out in the past. You don't want you want to make sure you don't bring that over into what the Lord is doing now. The way you do that is by remembering that you are born again. Don't hold anything against your spouse from their past, and you don't carry any baggage from your own past. And let the Lord do something brand new in both of you. Anonymous, thank you for your question. I hope that helps. Let's go right to our phone lines. We have Anonymous from Smithville. You're on the air. Okay, uh, my question is, how many different Sabbath days occurred between the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection? Hi, Anonymous. How many Sabbath days occurred between the crucifixion and his resurrection? Right. Uh, Let me think about this. I don't remember how many Sabbath days there were. There were there were no Sabbath days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Well, if there was, I take that back. If he's crucified on a Friday, yes, it's one day. So there would that would mean the Saturday, that would be the Sabbath, and then the resurrection on the Sunday. Sorry, anonymous, I'm not thinking clearly. Yes, I would say it would be that one. All right. Well, I'm having trouble understanding something. Let me read just a few few quick verses to let you see what I'm looking at. Okay. Uh, Luke 23, 54 said, uh, that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. Luke, next verse, 23, 55, it says, that basically the women observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Next verse, Luke twenty-three fifty-six reads, Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. Right. Uh, uh, it would seem that the work of preparing, the preparation of spices involved right. work, so apparently it would be after the Sabbath, and this was verified by Mark sixteen one, which says that the spices were bought after the Sabbath was passed. Now Luke twenty three fifty six concludes by saying, and then they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. It looks like two Sabbaths are there. Right. Actually, I see what you're saying. You're actually. You're, I see what you're saying. Luke chapter twenty three does mention that there possibly could be a second, a multiple Sabbaths or a second Sabbath. I think John chapter 19 mentions this also because there was the day of preparation mentioned in John chapter 19 and that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath was the high day. And the answer, the answer to this uh, anonymous would be that there it's likely that there was uh, a special Sabbath. This is what some say, uh, a second one that would have taken place earlier on. Um, And I read John chapter 19, and I read that in light of Luke chapter 23. It appears that there might have been a separate earlier celebration of the Sabbath that would have taken place. This is also... I think uh, the law in Leviticus chapter 20 or chapter 19 designates that there were occasions when an earlier Sabbath would have been separate, uh, celebrated. But I think the main point here is, and I love the fact that you're studying the word. Now, I remember this from your call uh, the other day. The details of the timeline of Jesus' crucifixion highlight the fact that this was all according to the scriptures. And there may be be some differences in perspective according to the gospel narratives, uh, like the way that uh, Luke records these details and the way John does also, and you also mentioned it in Mark. But it doesn't change the gospel story. It doesn't change the resurrection timeline. 
there may be some details that are included with another Sabbath. But remember this, Anonymous, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus died and rose again, and that's what needs to be our focus. But thank you for your question, Anonymous. Again, I love the fact that you're studying. Please keep calling. Let's go back to our phone lines. We've got Dave from San Antonio. You're on the air. Hi, Dave. Did we lose you? No, I'm here. Oh, hi, Dave. Hey, Pastor Ken, long-time listener, first-time caller. I have a quick question for you, and then I'm going to hang up and listen on the air. Okay, Dave. Uh, Last Friday evening, uh, Pastor Matt Blatton, he taught in uh, Matthew 12, 46 through 50, and he talked about um, earthly blood birth families and the relationship that is separate or differs from born-again spiritual families. And I was just wondering if he was possibly suggesting that the spiritual family was more important than the uh, earthly blood family. So if you could talk about that a little bit, I'll get off the uh, phone and listen. Thanks. Thank you, Dave. What a great question. I'm smiling. I know you can't hear that on the radio. I'm smiling because as Pastor Ron and Sam, who normally produces this show, are both on vacation this week. It's me filling in for Pastor Ron, and today it's Pastor Matt who's filling in for Sam. (laughs) So I'm smiling because he's sitting here right next to me. But yes, the answer to your question, Dave, is yes. But it's important to clarify what Jesus said, and I think Pastor Matt did a wonderful job on Friday night elaborating that we have blood family uh, through our birth and that blood family is who God has given us for us to grow up with and to, to spend our lives together, knitting hearts with one another. But that earthly family is different than our spiritual family. There are elements of a spiritual family. And make no mistake, Ephesians chapter 4, there in Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus speaks, and Peter the apostle does this also. The Bible speaks very clearly that the family of God is, is supernatural. The family we have here on earth is natural. And so the the way that we love one another in God's family is through his supernatural love. Apart from Christ, the best way we can love one another in our natural family is the natural love we have for one another, this phileo love. Uh, and, And make no mistake about it. I mean, there is a strong bond of love between a parent and a child. But what God says is that my love from a father to a son, and this is what John chapter 1 tells us. John writes in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 12, to those that received him, Jesus, he gave them the right to be called his sons. That means through faith in Christ, we join God's family, and that creates a supernatural bond that is held together in the love of Christ. And so as a natural byproduct of that supernatural love, there are going to be uh, stronger ties that are not like the natural love we have between our family here on earth. So that doesn't mean, though, that we love our family here on earth with less love. It's just a different love with its limitations. So what we do is we take that supernatural love that God pours into our hearts and and that love we pour into, when he makes us a born-again believer, we pour that into our natural family in the hope that they too would get saved. So we share not just the natural love and natural relationship, but, but even better, we enjoy the supernatural love and the supernatural relationship with our own natural family. So that's the long answer to your short question, Dave, the answer is yes. Supernatural love, this 
this family of God is even more intimate and bound by a stronger love than our earthly families. Does that help, Dave? Oh, I forgot. You hung up. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, I hope that helps, Dave. Thank you for your question. Let's go back into the, the phone lines are open. So now we can take other questions that have been submitted. The next one is from Jerry C. Jerry says, considering, I'm considering a new Bible, what translation would you recommend? I have a NIV at the moment, and I like the readability of it. A friend mentioned some concern with the NIV translation, but I'm not aware personally of any issues. Are you? Jerry, this, this is a common question we get, but we never get tired of answering this. Uh, it's important. The first thing I'll say about this when it comes to getting a Bible or picking a translation You don't want to be tied exclusively to one version. There are a handful of good translations. We here use the NIV 84. Now, your question specifically about the NIV, if there are any issues with it, it depends. And so I'm going to guess, Jerry, that you have the NIV 2011. And if that's the case, you, you can check that, by the way, by looking at the very front page, the inside cover, the publication date is, is always posted there, and you want to go by the latest year. And so the NIV translation on the publishing page will show a series of years, and you look at the latest one. If the latest one is 2011, you have the NIV 2011 version. Um, if you have that version, uh, we suggest using a different one. Uh, the reason why is because there have been some changes from the NIV 84, which is what we teach from here, to the NIV 2011 when it comes to gender neutrality. Now, I want to be clear. There isn't wholesale changes to the message, but one of the things that we disagree with uh, that biblically... you actually mentions that they focus on. That's the publishing company for the NIV. When it came to the 2011, they wanted to shy away from gender-specific pronouns and usage like his and father, and they'll use uh, generic terms um, because they, they don't want to use words that or pronouns that would be offensive or divisive. And, and what we do is we, we think that takes away from the original intent. Uh, one, one personal example that, comes, that I can think of is when Paul would write about uh, women not being teachers or not being pastors. And in the NIV 84, there, there's a slight difference between that and the 2011. But I think it's significant enough for people to build false teaching on. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, in the NIV 84, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. In the NIV 2011, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority. And, and you know, the difference might seem like splitting hairs, but there's enough room there for someone to argue that wanted to be a woman pastor and said, well, I'm not assuming authority here. This is authority that God has given me. Therefore, this verse allows me to be a pastor. And that's not what this verse says. It's very clear. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. And it's unfortunate that the NIV 2011 softens that a little bit, giving room for people uh, who want to teach a different theology to use this to back up their unbiblical uh, doctrine. And so little things like that, though again, may not change the overall message. There are multiple places in the Old and New Testament where uh, 
they soften the the pronouns and the masculinity to make it more gender neutral and that's an unfortunate way to translate the bible jerry thanks for thanks for your question uh, i'm sure that doesn't make everybody happy but it's just what the truth is we are just inside a couple minutes we're inside one minute uh, for the radio show in the first half here, so I don't have time to take any more questions, uh, any calls. We'll do that in the second half. The next one is a pretty long one, so I'll save that for after the break. Let me just elaborate on this last part uh, from Jerry. This question is not really about the translation. Get a solid translation, but but don't align yourself with just one translation. Study the Bible and get a version that you'll read. If it's the NLT version because of the readability is more akin to our modern language, then great. Use that one. But just don't tie yourself to one specific version. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the friday edition of the word to stand on for life my name is pastor ken and in case i forget at the end of this half uh let me just say thank you it's been a pleasure hosting this show these past two weeks uh, Pastor Ron is wrapping up his vacation, and he will be back here on the air live on Wednesday, July 5th. In the meantime, we still got half of the show to go, so we got time for your calls and questions. Let me give you the numbers. 210 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585, 877-630-5757. That's 877-630-5757. That's the toll-free number if you're out of the listening area. We have an email address if you want to submit questions that way. And that's questions at calvarysa.com. Questions at calvarysa.com. You can listen using the KSLR app. You can submit questions using the Church Calvary Chapel of San Antonio app Either way, we're glad that you're joining us. One quick note, in case you weren't here in the first half, let me remind you, Friday, New Testament study night, we have a a wonderful friend that's teaching, Pastor Jay Bentley from Calvary Chapel, Durango, 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Next question comes from Alex. I'm going to read the snippet that I think is part of the gist of his question Um, and then I'll address it here. So I'm going to not read the entire email. It's pretty long. And for uh, time to respect time, I'll just take, I think, what is the pertinent part of the question. Alex says, uh, note that there is a huge difference between struggling with a sin and living a lifestyle of sin. The Bible records many people committing sins. So just because something is mentioned in the Bible does not make it okay. That's correct. If polygamy was truly a sin, it would have to be a lifestyle of sin. If that was the case, David, Solomon, Jacob would have would not have not just sinned, but would have been living lives of open rebellion against God. I don't believe this was the case. Don't forget David asked God to search his heart. Okay, so Alex, and I think you submitted a question uh, previously on the same topic, but let me be clear here, and I'll address your question specifically about David. Polygamy is not within the confines of what God defines a biblical marriage to be according to his word. I think I mentioned this in the previous question in the first half of this show, but from Genesis chapter 2, the creation, to Malachi chapter 2, 
the entire Old Testament is wrapped in this clear statement that God has made uh, man to have one wife. God created man and so that the two would become one, husband and wife. Uh, man would leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two would become one. Jesus reaffirms that in the New Testament, but at the Old Testament, at the end of the Old Testament, when Malachi is actually uh, uh, he's sort of chastising the Jews because they have compromised in taking um, wives and letting them go, dealing with uh, their wives in an unbiblical way. And that's why the context of Genesis, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 2 says God hates divorce. He hates the specific practice of taking multiple women and exchanging them out. That wasn't God's design for marriage. He says, the wife of your youth to the husband, stick to that wife because you and her are partners. That's specifically what he says in Malachi 2. There is a partnership between you and your wife according to the marriage covenant that you agreed to. And that really is the biblical model. Now, to your question here about King David and Solomon, it is true that there were men in the Old Testament who had multiple wives. But I want to be very clear here. And you mentioned it, or you allude to it here at the beginning of your email, at the beginning of your question. The Bible records many people committing sins. And just because something's mentioned in the Bible does not make it okay. That's, that's true. So the fact that some men in the Old Testament might have taken multiple wives, even if they were told not to, from the beginning, Genesis, Deuteronomy, and we know kings are not to take multiple wives, and it doesn't apply just to kings, it's to the people. Well, obviously, David and Solomon and others violated that. But we have to be careful here, because when we make the assumption that they were living lives of open rebellion to God, we assume something. We eisegete into the text here, sort of a modern church, a New Testament understanding that uh, contextually was in a different dispensation. So what do I mean by that? David and Solomon and Jacob and these others lived in a different dispensation that doesn't mean God changed then to today. It means the way he dealt with people was different. Now, obviously, in that culture, polygamy might have been allowed, but it does not mean it was approved by God. In fact, if you look at every single instance of multiple wives being taken from these men that you list and more, David, Solomon, Jacob, and Abraham, there were a multitude of issues. Nothing good was said about having multiple wives. Now, to the point to where you say uh, they would have been living lives of open rebellion against God. Well, again, this is a different culture and a different dispensation. In that culture, women were often left for dead, and it would have been uh, an act of benevolence to take them in to protect them. Now, was that according to God's design for marriage between one man and one wife? No, but it seems to be something that God allowed for a time because their culture was different. But just because God allowed polygamy does not mean that it was approved. Nor does it mean it wasn't sin. These men that you list were not completely sinless. There were compromises that they had. The reason why God asked David to search his heart, and the reason why, Psalm 51, David writes about his repentance to God, is because they were sinners. He was a sinner that recognized he fell short. And the reason why he's a man after God's heart is because he would repent of his sin. Another thing about this, 
the fact that they operated in a different dispensation also means that David and Solomon did not have the Holy Spirit living in them the way we do. And so it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit didn't use them, but the Holy Spirit didn't dwell within them the way he does for born-again Christians in the New Testament context. And so the Holy Spirit would come upon them from time to time to empower them But when they lived lives that compromised in their marriages, then it limited their usability. But don't mistake that allowance for approval. I think this is very important because we have to be careful to eisegete in something from our modern New Testament church context into something that took place in a different dispensation, in a different culture. Again, God made it clear. This was his design for marriage. One man, one wife. And anything beyond that, the multiplicity of wives, would be a compromise and therefore um, limited their usability. I hope that makes sense, Alex. Again, no good stories about uh, marriages that have multiple wives. In in fact, there's nothing but heartbreak, heartbreak that comes from them. That's why that isn't God's design for marriage. Thank you for your uh, question, Alex. Uh, Let's go on to the next one while the phone lines are open. Anonymous, does Proverbs... 30, oh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 31, verse 7, promote drinking alcohol if you're depressed. Let me read the passage. Actually, I know this passage. I'm going to read uh, the context, not just verse 7. This is the sayings of Kim Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. So King Lemuel is writing about what he learned from his mother, Proverbs 31 we know is often referenced as uh, the wife of noble character. So this is before that section. And King Lemuel writes, O my son, O my son of the womb, O my son of my vows, do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. This is about protecting his reign as king. Now that context is important. Verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings... To drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed their rights. Now, here's where we start to get into what I think your question's about, Anonymous. Verse 6 Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, when you take that verse, verse 7, that you include in your question, Anonymous, and you read it out of context, you could easily think that this would be a promotion of drinking alcohol, but that's not what it is. That's not what it is. The context defines what's being said here. And this, again, is King Lemuel sort of recollecting what his mom taught him when it came to Um, bringing honor to the kingdom, bringing honor to his reign as king. And he says here, don't drink wine. It's not for kings. He said, it's not for rulers to crave beer. Why? Because it will draw them away from their ability to think clearly. It says, they'll forget what the law says. They'll forget what God's word says. This is a reason why Paul writes, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, that we are, not, we are to be filled with the Spirit, not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. And there is a, a, a big contradistinction between the two because they're polar opposites. You're either controlled by the Spirit or you're controlled 
by the flesh. And what King Lemuel is writing here, he's saying that beer or alcohol is used for those that are dying, for those whose lives are about to end. Back in that time, alcohol would be used as a, sort of as an anesthetic, a painkiller to sort of alleviate the suffering. Remember when Jesus was offered the gall from the sponge while he was dying on the cross and he refused it. That was intended to help him to sort of uh, numb the pain. And that's what's in context here. That's what's in context. It isn't a, a promotion to drink uh, and lose yourself when you're, if you're having problems. He's saying, no, that's how people act that don't defend, the, that aren't living up to uh, the seat of the king or the responsibility of the king. And so don't act like those people. Well, how much more for us who are Christians? We're not defending a throne and we're, we're not uh, living up to the standard of a king, per se, but we are actually uh, representing one even higher. We are a royal priesthood in the order of Christ. In other words, what we do and how we live our lives directly reflects Jesus. And so if we are to lose ourselves in alcohol and get drunk and 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 uh, drown ourselves or drown our depression and our anxiety in alcohol uh, we actually prove that we live like the rest of the world and that's what this verse this passage is talking about those of us who are christians yes we struggle yes we have hardship and yes we even go through difficult times but instead of running to alcohol or running to something, to, to sex or to, to social media or something that will uh, soften the blow for us, what we do is we go to Jesus and we stay with him where he's at, in his word, surrounded by his grace. And this is what happens when Christians, people who love the Lord, are going through a really hard time, you know, I love uh, that the proverb writes the proverb about the 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 righteous run into the strong tower and they're safe there. I think it's Proverbs eighteen or nineteen, but could be wrong. But the 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 word picture here, it still stands. That's Jesus. He is the strong tower, and it's in him we run. Well, guess what? That strong tower, it protects us when we're in him. If we're standing outside, we are subject to the fiery darts of the enemy. And that's like going to alcohol or something else to numb our pain. No, the, the best way to deal with hardship is to... Go to Jesus. Don't go to anything else. So anonymous, yeah, Proverbs 31 verse 7 is not promoting drinking alcohol. If you're depressed, it is the opposite, actually. We can't do that if we're born again. Oh, we had a call from Ola, but she dropped. Ola, if you're listening, uh, I apologize for taking so long. If you're, We still have time if you want to call back. We'll move you to the top. Next question is for Max. Does Matthew 18 mean that God will treat us harshly if we refuse to forgive other? Uh, I think it refuse to forgive others. Um, so context here is important. Uh, this is when Peter is asking Jesus, uh, about forgiveness. And he says to Jesus, when somebody sins against me, Jesus, should I forgive them seven times or should I forgive them seven times, seven times? Up to seven times and, and Jesus corrects them. Peter is thinking, 
that he's going above and beyond by asking if I should forgive seven times. And, and Jesus gives a, a, a shocking response to Peter because Peter, thinking he is giving a godly response, Jesus shows him how carnal his thinking is by saying no. It should be seven, 70 times seven. But it doesn't mean 490 times is the limit. <laughs> That's not the literal interpretation of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this, there is no limit. There is no limit to the forgiveness you should offer somebody. Why? Because there is no limit to the forgiveness that Jesus offers you. And this is key. Because when, and Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says there in the fourth chapter that we are to forgive others as in Christ God has forgiven us. He means that we take the same principle of forgiveness that, that God has applied to our own lives for our own sin and in the vast amount of sin that he has wiped away and forgiven me of never to be brought back up again, he says you do the same for others. Not just once, but without limit and without measure. Now back to Matthew chapter 18, your question here, uh, does does that mean God will treat us harshly if we refuse to forgive others? And I think your question is about the last part of this passage because here Jesus says in verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Let me move back the verse before that. He says, uh, because the parable is of the, of the unmerciful servant, and the story is that he was forgiven a whole bunch, went out, found somebody that owed him a little bit, and he forced that person to pay back that little bit that he owed. He gets called back into his master's office and says, You wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Verse 34, in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then verse 35, the last verse of this passage says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And he's not talking about harsh treatment He's talking about not having a full understanding of what forgiveness is. In other words, if you forgive people according to the way Jesus has forgiven you, supposedly, and you demonstrate that by not forgiving somebody of a little thing, then what you're effectively saying is that you don't know the forgiveness of Christ. And since you don't know, you don't have the forgiveness of Christ, there is no forgiveness for you. This is important because when someone has been forgiven of their sin, it radically changes the way you treat other people. Because you have been forgiven of so much, it's easy to forgive others of so little. However, if you're like the Pharisees in Luke chapter 7 and you only love God a little because you are really not a bad person and you haven't been forgiven that much, well, then what's going to happen is you're never going to know the forgiveness that God offers because the forgiveness of God that God offers requires that we acknowledge we are sinners that deserve death. And because Jesus paid the ultimate price by sacrificing himself after living a perfect life, he is one that did not deserve that death, but he did it for you and for me, Max. And that should generate in us uh, a sense of appreciation for the scope of his forgiveness. And when we understand that, then we can forgive others the way Christ has forgiven us. Anything short of that, Jesus says, you, you don't understand it. You don't get it. And since you don't have the forgiveness of my Father, then you have no forgiveness. I think this is really important, Max, and so I hope that makes sense. We are inside two minutes, and so I don't have time for another question. 
and I don't have time to take another call, I want to take a moment just to say one more time thank you to the radio listening audience. It is a pleasure to be here, to spend time with you guys, to get to know you guys. Me and May had a great time yesterday. We had a great time last week on the Date Day edition. We were just talking about how it, it it's time flies so fast when you're on the air and when uh, we're talking on the Date Day edition. And it's the same with you guys. When you guys call in, we love it. And that's why we're here. And so Pastor Ron, again, as a reminder, will be returning from his vacation tomorrow. He's teaching here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday, uh, where he has a special message, a post-vacation message to share with the church body about what the Lord has shown him while he was away. If you don't go to church here at Calvary Chapel, I pray that you would go to your church expectantly hearing... uh, from the Lord with an open heart and an open Bible. And uh, we pray that not only would you hear from the Lord, but also that people would get saved. Because that's what we do, and that's why we do this. Uh, well, you can hear the music. That means the Friday edition of The Word is Down for Life is now complete. Again, it's a pleasure being here with you. Pastor Ron will be live here on the air Wednesday, July 5th two pre-recorded programs Monday and Tuesday. Enjoy your holiday weekend. God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.